Hello, and welcome to Speaking of Psychology, a podcast produced by the American Psychological Association. I'm your host, Audrey Hamilton. In this episode, I talk with a psychologist about bringing feminism to young girls and teens who are coming of age in a challenging time. So there's all these things that, you know, show that, hey, we're equal and we've succeeded and we've arrived. And yet... um, Obviously, we can look around our culture and see that we still have a long way to go. More than previous generations, today's teens are being brought up to believe girls can do anything, but they still face the challenges of being a teenage girl, and that does include increased rates of depression and low self-esteem. But according to our guest, feminist psychological theory and practice could be used to better support teenage girls while giving them the courage to face the challenges of adolescence. Gail Pittman is a psychology and women's gender studies professor at Sacramento City College. She's also a children's book author and has written several books published by Imagination Press, focusing on LGBTQ issues for children. Her latest book is called Feminism A to Z. It's a hands-on introduction for teens and tweens who are interested in learning about feminism. Welcome, Dr. Pittman. Hi, thank you. So your latest book, Feminism A to Z, I'm interested to hear what this book is about and who it's for. It is exactly what it sounds like. It's feminism from A to Z. Um, It's intended as a book for teenagers and potentially older tweens, kind of in that ballpark, depending on how mature the the child is. Um, Basically giving kids an introduction to the world of feminism. and I structured it as an A to Z by chapter. So each chapter has a focus that's organized by letters. So like, for example, the first chapter is called A is for anger. Uh, and it outlines um, the reasons why girls and women might be angry about the various injustices that have been committed against them over the centuries, really, um, as well as how women and girls who are angry are perceived, right? Like anger and femininity tend not to go together, at least in the, our culture. So. Um, So that's the focus for that chapter. And then each chapter also has um, a history focus, focusing on some element of women's history or feminist history or what have you. Um, And then there's an activity called Try This. Um, So it really gets kids um, into action, kind of out of their heads and into their hands and heart, if you will, um, and finding ways to take action in their own lives. So it's really intended for a teenage audience, although you could scale it up or scale it back depending on the, the maturity of the child. It's, it's, I was just going to say, I imagine this is difficult because for teenagers and the kids that age, they're very much in their own heads. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and in their own worlds, right? right? I mean, that is what is most important to them. Um, so I, I'm curious, you know, why you thought that it's important to bring the message of feminism to a group like that. Right. Um, well, I teach women and gender studies at Sacramento City College. And so, you know, a lot of my students are 18, 19, 20 years old, sometimes older than that. Um, and I think that that's usually the age where um, girls and women start to learn about feminism, start to become more aware. And, um, and yet, I think that if girls were introduced to some of the concepts of feminism earlier, um, that that could really help them weather the storms of adolescence. Um, Because I think that not only are there the physical and um, cognitive changes that happen during adolescence, there's also kind of a level of awareness that teens start to get, an awareness that um, 
the world may not be what they thought it was when they were children. Um, they become more aware of sexism and racism and homophobia and transphobia and other types of injustices. Um, and yet they may not necessarily, they have the they have the cognitive tools to understand it intellectually, but they may not necessarily have um, the emotional tools or the maturity um, to be able to navigate those kinds of realities. And I think that feminism can offer a set of tools, if you will, um, to help them wrap their heads around this in their own lives. So that's really why I decided to write the book. Is there research out there to show that young girls, teenagers are more likely to identify as feminists than older generations? And you know, do their ideas of feminism line up with older generations' ideas of right. feminism. Right, so there's really two questions there, right? Yeah. Do, are millennials likely to call themselves feminists and why or why not, uh, depending? And um, if they do, do their ideas of feminism line up with other generations? And so um, what I've seen in the research, um, and I haven't seen anything like super recently, but um, what I've seen over the years is that generally, um, the further away we get from like the 1960s, 1970s um, era of feminism, um, the less likely we tend to see girls and women identifying as feminists. There was a bit of a blip during the 90s, which a lot of people refer to as the quote unquote third wave of feminism, although there's lots of people that don't like wave models necessarily, and there's some discussion of that in the book. I think that especially for millennials, um, they're a generation that's kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. And what I mean by that is that um, they're growing up in an era where they have more rights than ever before, right? Like they have uh, the right to go to school, they have the right to learn how to read, they have the right to um, open up their own checking account. I mean, things that we just take for granted, which a couple of generations ago uh, was not necessarily the case. Um, and so there's all these things that you know show that, hey, we're equal and we've succeeded and we've arrived, and yet, um, obviously, we can look around our culture and see that we still have a long way to go. Um, and so I, I, because of that, I don't think that most teens and young adults today identify with like the old school kind of feminism of the 70s, and I think that's what a lot of people think of when they think of feminism. You know, they think of like holding banners and marching and, uh, I don't know, burning their bras, which mm -hmm. interestingly is a myth that never happened, but, you know, it, 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 seriously. <laughs> is it really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was basically um, a form of propaganda that was, um, you know, flooded throughout the media to try to convince people not to be feminist. Um, and it worked because you still hear that phrase today. Um, so I think that's what a lot of um, girls and young women think of when they think of feminism. And one of the things that I do with my students on the first day of class in my Psych of Women class um, is ask them to write down what words come to mind. Uh, we do sort of like a free association activity. What words come to mind when they hear the word feminist? And it's so fascinating because there's all these words that come up, some of which are empowering, some of which are really negative. Um, and then we start to unpack um, the actual definitions of feminism and some of the different feminist philosophies. And that's one of the things that the early chapters of feminism from A to Z does, is start to um, shine a light on the fact that there isn't just one way to be feminist. There's a variety of different um, approaches to it, a variety of different theoretical perspectives, uh, depending on who you are, depending on your social location, depending on a variety of different things. And once students start to recognize that, then they're much more likely to uh, buy into it. But I think it's the label. Like, there's something about the word mm -hmm. that um, kind of makes girls and, you know, makes millennials in particular um, say, oh, no, that's not me. That's, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's something right. different. 
So in this age of social media, girls are also getting, I would say, very mixed messages about what's okay to share, uh, what's the right way to do things. Um, but it's also easy for them to connect with each other, you know, mm-hmm. find other people who share their views. How do you think social media is shaping the feminist movement now among younger generations, and is or is it hindering the movement? You know, I hear a lot of people say that um, millennials are not very politically active, right? Like they don't care about politics, they don't stay on top of social issues, et cetera. And I, I don't know, maybe I live in a bubble with my students, but I would disagree. Um, I would say that they they pay attention differently than previous generations did, and that a lot of their activism stems from social media. I mean, I think, for example, about the Black Lives Matter movement, um, which isn't necessarily a feminist movement, although there's a feminist um, intersection there, um, that started as a Twitter hashtag. I mean, that was an act of, you know, I mean, that was a form of social media activism. Uh, We think a number of years ago about the Occupy movement. um, That also started on social media. Um, The uh, March on Washington after the election where, um, you know, women across the country were knitting, you know, pink hats, you know, pink pussy hats. Um, that started as a social media trend. And so I think there's a lot of um, opportunity for activism and connecting that way using various social media platforms. Um, the downside that I see is that there's something very powerful about, um, like, people physically getting together and having a conversation in real time um, that's not hindered by technology. And I I don't know, I think it's a little early to tell whether or not it's social media and technology in general is a hindrance to that. Um, I just see a lot less, you know, like personal engagement in that way. There's a lot of online engagement and technology infused engagement, but in terms of face-to-face, like boots on the ground type of organizing, um, and even just brainstorming and, you know, just sharing, you know, sharing some everyone's narratives and life stories. I think that that's, um, it remains to be seen, I think, how social media um, impacts that process. Um, your work also focuses on educating students on LGBTQ history. Well, you know, one of your other mm-hmm. Imagination Press books, uh, When You Look Out the Window. Um, can you talk a little bit about that book, what it's about, um, and why do you think it's important for parents and educators to teach children these stories? Right. So When You Look Out the Window is a picture book biography about uh, lesbian activist couple Phyllis Lyon and Del Martin, um, who, if you live in the San Francisco Bay Area, like, almost everybody knows who they are um, because they are just iconic. Um, but if you live outside of that area, lots, you know, there's people within the LGBT community who may know who they are and what their contributions are, but I would say that the vast majority of people are just completely unfamiliar with their activism. Um, and the reality is, is that they, um, I think in many ways, launched the LGBT movement um, back in the 1950s. I mean, we think about Stonewall, the Stonewall riots is kind of the beginning of the modern day LGBT um, social justice movement. Um, but if you go back a couple of decades earlier, back to the 1950s, when Phyllis and Dell met and then moved in together and you know started their activist journey, um, the landscape was very harsh. I mean, it was the post-war era. It was um, the era of McCarthyism and the Red Scare and fear of anyone who was potentially communist or different or leftist or not mainstream in any way, whatever way. Um, and 
that was that was the environment that Phyllis and Dell were living in in San Francisco. And instead of hiding or instead of, you know, kind of staying under the radar, they were out and loud and proud and, you know, just like pounded the pavement until Dell died in 2008. Um, and so I think that their story is really powerful and that... Um, is one of the reasons that I wanted to write this. And the other thing, um, kind of going to your second question, is that um, I worry a lot that these narratives, um, if they don't get written down or if they don't get passed down in some way, shape, or form, um, that they're going to get lost. Um, I mean, there's lots of LGBT history that's already been lost, um, largely because LGBT people typically don't live in families with other LGBT people. Um, they're kind of in isolation and have to find community in some way. Um, so there isn't that kind of natural passing down of stories, um, you know, that kind of oral tradition, that oral narrative um, that you see, say, in communities of color or other marginalized mm-hmm. groups where people have shared identities. In the LGBT community, um, that's a much more difficult kind of process. And so if people aren't writing these down or recording them in some way, um, it's easy for those stories to get lost. And I'm seeing it already in my classroom. I mean, when I teach um, about sexuality and gender, uh, lots of my students don't know anything about the Stonewall riots. They've never heard of Phyllis Lyon and Del Martin. Um, they didn't know about uh, McCarthyism and the Red Scare. Um, increasingly, and this is really scary to me, considering that this is within my own lifetime, there's lots of students that are unaware about the magnitude of the AIDS crisis mm-hmm. um, and the ways in which the government did or didn't intervene to try to prevent further deaths from happening. And so when they learn of this, they become, number one, surprised. And then number two, um, really angry, especially my LGBTQ-identified students. I mean, the first question they'll ask is, how come nobody ever taught us this? This is unbelievable. And I think it's um, a symptom of a larger problem of history mm-hmm. is not necessarily getting passed down. And um, I think a great place to start is with children. Yeah. Hmm. This is kind of just a side question, but I'm curious. You're a psychologist. You're a college professor. Um, tell me how you got involved in writing children's books. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fair question. <laughs> you know, like what was it about children's books that? And I think you touched a little bit just now on that. You know, like you said, like passing down this, these these stories to children. You know, right. or is somewhere to start. With right. That, right. Right. Yeah. This is uh, actually it's good that you asked that question because my path to writing children's book is a kind of twisty and turny one. So uh, <laughs> I have a friend um, outside of my academic work and psychology and all of that, um, who's a children's book writer and illustrator. And she was an academic um, in children's writing and creative writing um, at a university. And she, at some point in her career, decided to step back from academia and do her writing and illustrating full time and also launch um, writing classes. So um, she had just moved to Sacramento. She was launching her very first class. She was trying to drum up business. (laughs) Um, I ran into her one day. She was telling me about her class. And she... um, basically twisted my arm and I'm not fabulous at saying no so I said yes and then afterwards I was like oh my gosh I can't believe I said yes to this I can't do this I don't have time blah 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 um but oh my gosh this class was unbelievable it was so much fun it just opened up a whole different area of my brain I guess you could say um whole different form of creativity and um it was once I started doing that type of writing and then getting a sense of the landscape of kids' books um, and seeing what was there but also what wasn't there, like who wasn't being represented in children's books and what wasn't being written about, that I got even more motivated to start focusing my energy in that direction. Well, great. Well, Dr. Pittman, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
Thanks for listening. Make sure you check out our other episodes of Speaking of Psychology and please subscribe if you haven't already. We are a proud member of the APA Podcast Network, which includes other great podcasts such as APA Journals Dialogue. You should check that out if you want to hear about the latest and most exciting psychology research. If you are interested in the practice of psychology, be sure to listen to Progress Notes. Topics include how healthcare policy and social media affect practicing psychologists. You can find those podcasts on iTunes and Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to our website, speakingofpsychology.org, to listen to even more episodes and gather more resources on the topics we discussed. Thanks for joining us. I'm Audrey Hamilton with the American Psychological Association, and this is Speaking of Psychology. Thank you.